separates. I do keep that open and uh, there's a talk notes as well if you'd find that helpful to see where we're going or to take notes. Let's pray as we come uh, to look at this great chapter. Father, thank you so much for uh, this, this wonderful book. Thank you that these aren't just nice, interesting, fun stories. Thank you these are real events of seeing you work in times gone by. And Father, pray that as we see how you worked in the past, please give us uh, a right view and confidence in how you work uh, today as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Brilliant. I want you to imagine a, a couple of people with me, made up people. First off, we have Sam. Sam isn't a Christian, although they, they probably believe there is a God. But what or who this God is, doesn't really know. And certainly it doesn't seem like this God does very much in our world today, if there is one. The God that they imagine isn't interested, isn't particularly impressive, in fact, it's probably a bit impotent. Therefore, is not worthy of, of our attention. And as a result, Sam lives their life entirely for the here and now. They live for the good times. Jamie. Jamie is a Christian. Jamie's been a Christian for following Jesus for, for 10 or so years. But they're starting to doubt God's power. Now, they, they wouldn't say that, of course, but subtly, that's the, how the thinking is starting to go. And so as a result, when their boss has said, look, you could get this promotion, but for this time, look, your job has got to be your God. And actually they start to think, okay, maybe just for now, for this season. And so, for example, church life has, uh, sorry, current job has become uh, as equally important as church life. Well, I think Daniel chapter 3 would speak to both Sam and Jamie, and I think it would speak to us when we have thoughts, whether it's little thoughts or whether it's big thoughts, of doubting God's power and not seeing actually that we have a wonderful hope for the future. And therefore, we're starting to live more and more for the here and now. We're in week three of our series, Faithful in Babylon. We're thinking about what it means to be faithful in Babylon, seeing the example of Daniel and his friends, but more than that, seeing how actually that is a call for us too today, to be faithful living in Babylon, living, uh, as it were, away from home, living in a world that is uh, not uh, loving and living for God's. And in week one, we thought, well, what does it mean to be faithful to faithful in Babylon? It means, first of all, to, to not withdraw from it. But actually, God has a, a job and a role for us to do here. So play a full part in the world in which we live. But at the same time, don't be drawn in by the world. So we have to be distinct, we have to be different from it. And then last week, we had our view of God elevated as we saw that he alone knows and reveals, and it's his kingdom alone that is going to last. And then chapter 3 builds actually on both of these ideas of expanding our view of God and showing us what it means to be faithful while in Babylon. And as you can see from your, uh, uh, from your hand out there, and if I could have the first slide up, please. Being faithful in Babylon means don't worship anything but God. 
What does it mean to be faithful in Babylon? Don't worship anything but God. Chapter 2 ended actually quite dramatically with King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the, the king who conquered God's people, actually declaring God's greatness. So he's the God of gods, the king of kings. But it's quickly forgotten because by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 1, we see Nebuchadnezzar is building a great big statue. Have a look, look at it with me. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. There you go, that's 60 cubits, roughly speaking 90-odd feet, um, 30-odd metres, a bit less than 30 metres, by 9 feet, 9 metres. So very tall, quite narrow. Uh, something like a nine-storey building. So this is a pretty big um, image. Whether some people think that it was in his image, made to look like him, possibly. Uh, whether it was just made look like his gods, I think more likely. But whatever it is, it's impressive. It's, it's gold-plated. Now, why did he do that? Well, last week, if you kind of just flick your eyes back to verse 31, we saw that... Um, that Daniel had this dream of an image. Notice that word, of an image. And Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold on that image. And this image represented four kingdoms, and Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold, and later uh, this rock was going to come and destroy those kingdoms, as we saw pointing to the Lord Jesus. But he had a vision of an image of which he was the head of gold. Now look to chapter 3, verse 1 again. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. So was this an act of an egotistical despot who wanted everyone to celebrate himself, the head of gold? Probably, at least partly. Was this an act of a fearful dictator who was worried about that his kingdom wouldn't last and so was desperate to do all that he could to keep his subjects loyal to him, I think probably quite likely too. Because see what he does with this image. He calls all of his officials to their grand unveiling. And then hear what is said to the officials and all the peoples he gathered. Verse 4. The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of a horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Fall down and worship it. What a great ego boost that would have been for Nebuchadnezzar, right? Looking out across the masses, the hordes, when the music starts, they all bow down at his words. But also, what a great way of ensuring uniformity and submission right across his empire. Right? His empire is spread quite wide at this time. All different uh, nations, all different gods, backgrounds, well, they're all going to bow down to his. The story is told of um, Russia in the 30s of uh, a provincial meeting in which um, Stalin was mentioned. And when his name was mentioned, well, the whole room rose to their feet and, and started clapping. And then they got to that awkward moment. Who was going to be the first to stop? And eventually, apparently, an old man was too tired and sat down and stopped. His name was taken, and the next day he was arrested. 
What's the kind of the picture here? Getting all the people doing the same thing. And hence the threat of verse 6. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. Uh, the fiery furnaces were apparently pretty common in those days to make bricks possibly built into the side of hills so that things could be thrown into the top of them, that the fuel could be thrown into the top. Well, the prospect of being roasted alive does tend to inspire obedience. And so unsurprisingly, you see by the end of verse 7, when all the music starts, all the peoples, nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Everyone does exactly what he said. They fall down and worship. I don't know if you can kind of, if I have the next slide please, kind of think of the, the video clips perhaps we might see today um, of uh, the parades in North Korea. Just absolutely everyone in total um, unity in sync, uh, together are doing exactly what they're told. And I think that's the kind of picture we're to get here. Absolutely everyone doing the same thing. But not quite. Not quite everyone. In verse 8, we're, we're introduced to some disgruntled Chaldeans. We met the Chaldeans last week. They were part of um, Nebuchadnezzar's religious advisors. And they were jealous, probably. They didn't like the fact that these three Jews had been promoted, we saw at the end of last week. And so in verse 12, they come and they maliciously accuse them. Uh, See what they say um, in verse 12. There are certain Jews you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar is not happy. No, we see in verse 13, in furious rage. He can hardly believe it. So verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? And he even gives them one last chance. Verse 15, Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And then the arrogance. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? There it is. This is is crunch point. What are they going to do? If you don't know this story, I, I, in a sense, I envy you. The, Chald- the Chaldeans, it's interesting, in their, their little grovelly speech to the king, that three times they say, O king, O king, O king, bigging him up. Interesting in their response of these faithful three, they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, well, you're just a man. See verse 16. And these are the central verses, again, kind of sandwiched in the middle for us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out from your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
Wow. Incredible faithfulness there. Deliverance or death, they will not bow down to these foreign gods. Because to bow down to this image was indeed to serve, to worship the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. Now just think, for, think about it there. It must have been so easy for them to say, at this point I've got this extra chance just to do it. Just think of the pressure that was on them. The king had set, said these things. And here he was right in front of them saying, look, do, do this, one last chance. Think of the pressure from the, the conf- to conform. Everyone else around them is doing it. Think of the hostility from the enemies, the Chaldeans. Think about the, f- the threat. If they say no, in two minutes' time, they're going to be in a fiery furnace. It would have been so precious, so easy to, to do. Okay, I'll just do it. And you could kind of think of the, the, the excuses, potential excuses that might have gone round in their minds or perhaps other people would be thinking as they looked at this. You know, God wants these people alive. He, he'd kept these three as they were carried off into Babylon. And hey, look, they, they've been put into positions of prominence. They could be act as this kind of buffer between the, the king and God's people and pr- protect them. Maybe they just thought, you know, just this once, we'll do it, we're here, while well, we've been watched, and then we're fine. Well, you know what, let's just bow down, but I'm not going to worship it, right? It's going to be a purely physical thing, I'm going to do it, but, but in my heart I'm not. So easy. But no, this is the challenge to the foundation of faithfulness. If you have the, the next slide up, please. The... Um, Ten Commandments, those commandments that were given to God's people um, after he brought them out of Exodus to show them how they shall live. This is commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before or besides me. And he goes on to say, what does that mean, to have no other gods beside me? You shall not make for yourself carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under, under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and serve them. You shall not do it, God says, and so they wouldn't. And remember also that God's people were in exile because they did do that. Repeatedly, 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 they did worship other gods. But no, these three won't do it. Now this scenario might seem a little bit distant. Okay, nice story, but, but what about us? Okay, kind of being threatened by hostile regimes, bowing down to gold images. You know what, but there are some Christians across the world who face situations very much like this. And indeed there'll be people in our church family who do face pressure, for example, to go along with religious rituals involving bowing down or, or worshipping actual idols, physical uh, things that have been created. You know what, but for all of us, there is that danger of worshipping things other than God's. You know, don't we constantly get told in our world that job or education is the most important thing in the world? Don't we get told that money, sex, power, that is the most important thing. That is what you should live for. That temptation is always there to treasure, to prize, to love, that is to worship things other than God. And indeed, sometimes we might face pressure to not be faithful to God's. 
You, know, you get that final warning from the disciplinary committee at work saying, look, this is your last chance. Stop speaking of Jesus. Or you might get the, like, from the friends, come on, you never do anything fun. If you don't do this, we're just going to not invite you next time. Sometimes we may lose family, a job, reputation, friends, some people, and maybe in this country at some point, even lives. We get told that we must worship these things. And if you don't, you're going to lose out, you're going to fail. Well, what are we going to do? And I think the real challenge here as well is, is you notice what Nebuchadnezzar wasn't doing. He wasn't saying, you've got to turn your back on all your gods and worship this one. Oh, no, no, very happy. Yeah, you keep your gods. But you've got to worship this one as well. And I think that might be where the real challenge comes for us if you're a Christian. Yeah, of course you have gods. But this as well. So this is a challenge for us all, isn't it? To not worship anything but God. And let's face it, it is hard. Our hearts are drawn to other things. And we fail. But the example of these three does more than simply inspire us to do the same. They Actually, these three point us to the only one who only and ever worships God alone. So these three stood up in an incredible way here, but they weren't perfect. Now, they, these three point us to Jesus, who when he started out his public life, for example, uh, we saw this in Luke when we were there, it was tempted by Satan, if we could have the next slide up. And Satan is, is tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And at one stage he shows them all, all the kingdoms of the world. He says, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus' response, next slide please. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve, and him only shall you serve. Jesus was the only one who remained steadfastly faithful in worshipping God alone through his whole life. Jesus, who would go on to die for those who have failed to stay faithful to God. And Jesus, the one who by his spirit today still helps his people to stay focused in worshipping God alone. But in this passage, there, there are, I think, two reasons to help us in this. Two reasons why we shouldn't worship anything but God. Further, the next slide up. So our next thing is, well, first, first reason is, well, because idols are empty. Idols are empty. Daniel, I've loved getting stuck into Daniel. And one of the things I've been struck by is how, in a sense, easy he makes it in spotting what he cares, what he thinks is important. He does that mainly through the use of repetition. And so in our chapter today, you would have spotted it, worship and serve, those words come 16 times. Right? That's what they're being called to do. Bow down, worship and serve these idols. But then see what Daniel draws our attention to about this image. Just quickly again, look at verse 1 and just spot the words. Daniel's uh, very important with them. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. In verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar himself says, the image I have made. And then nine times we get this little phrase, set up. 
Time and again we read the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We're meant to be thinking, when we're called to bow down to this thing, why would you? Nebuchadnezzar made it. He set it up. Why would you bow down and worship something that this guy has made? Yes, it is impressive. It's gold, it's huge. But it's no more divine than your garden gnome. Why would you bow down to it? Daniel was using humour and the repetition of these lists of all the officials and all the music were meant to be like, oh, here they all come, doing what they're told. It's stupid. These repetitive lists that they're mocking. Yes, it looks impressive, but it's ludicrous. Everyone together with the cacophony of music. You think what those instruments would sound like together? And blah, blah, blah. And they all kind of bow down. It's fearful, but it's a farce. You know, when we think about career, beauty, fame, wealth, popularity, it's empty. It doesn't last. So first off, quite simply, don't bow down to these things because idols are empty. And if you have the next slide, please. Second one, and this is the main thrust, really. Don't worship anything other than God because God is powerful to save. This is the, the focal point of the central verses in 16 to 18 and that are displayed through the rest of the chapter. And this is what enabled these three to stand firm. Have a look down again in verse 16. Uh, Let me read from the second half. And when they speak to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out from your hands, O king. This image that you want us to bow down to is empty, is nothing. It's man-made chunk of stone and bit of gold. Our God, he is able to deliver. Here is their faith. Their faith is in God who is able to deliver. But do you note, please, that it is their, their faith is in God's ability to deliver, not in the certainty that he will So they go on in verse 18, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we still won't do it. They trust completely that God is able to save. They don't know whether he will. That is faith. Now there are some circles of Christianity who want to say, look, that's not faith. Who want to say, look, no, God will save me. God will deliver me. No, it's trust in God's ability We don't know what he will do. But as you'd expect, Nebuchadnezzar is not happy. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. He was angry before. He's filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. That's kind of um, like as hot as you can get. As hot as you can get. Uh, and, and see kind of his the overkill in this almost well literally uh, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace 
And the men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flames of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See how they... Uh, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar's overkill. So much so that even the mighty men who have bound and tied them up, they themselves are killed. And I want you just to notice some really fun kind of word, word play that Daniel brings introduces here. Have a look at verse 23. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell. Fall down? Same word. One, you know, they're meant to fall down before the idol? They don't fall down before the idols, but they fall into the burning, fiery furnace. And sometimes we're kept in suspense at moments like this, but not here. And actually we get to see events through the king's eyes. So verse 24, look, the king, uh, king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counsellors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And again, there's, a, there's another little um, play on words. You see that those words rose up. They're, they're the, the words for set up. He set up this image, and now he's set up himself, looking gormless. Uh, and uh, what caused this surprise? Well, second half of verse 24 is, is that he, look, weren't there three of them? Verse 25, he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they were not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Three times we were told they were bound. Not now. They're walking about in the fire with this fourth man that we'll come back to a bit later. Anyway, Nebuchadnezzar calls them out and out they come. Uh, and again, we get a kind of fun twist in verse 27. Uh, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king councillors, all these people who'd been called to witness this idol and to bow down to it, they're the first ones to see God's deliverance. Uh, see verse 27. Um, they gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. You know, things that would burn most easily, right? Hair. Well, that's horrible, isn't it, when it burns? Hair and, and clothes still intact. And you know when you have a, you have a barbecue and your clothes stink for uh, a couple of days or a couple of washes? Well, not, not here. Even here, that there, um, there was no smell of fire had come on them. And then the chapter comes full circle with another royal decree, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's commands, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own gods. Therefore I make this decree, any people, nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and the houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And the three of them get promoted. Back in the end of verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar always mockingly to, to them and mockingly to God says, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, here's the answer. God. The Lord. 
delivered them completely. Now this deliverance is not meant to imply, again, a blanket promise that we will always be delivered out of all of our hardships and and any kind of suffering for our faith. If the three friends rule that out for themselves, they say, look, we don't know what's going to happen to ourselves. But their deliverance, their deliverance, proves their statement to be true. They said, God is able to deliver us. And God proves that by doing so. Delivering them even from the most powerful man on the planet. And this deliverance comes in kind of two stages. Firstly, they are, do you notice, they are kept safe in the fire. God could have just put the furnace out. There one way to deliver them. But no, what does he do? He sends someone to go in to be with them. Now there is some debate whether this is, uh, this is the pre-incarnate Jesus or whether this is an angel. I don't think we're told enough in this passage to, to be sure. But either way, whether it's the pre-incarnate Jesus or whether it was an angel who is shadowing Jesus, Emmanuel, who would come to be with God's people, it doesn't really matter. Uh, Calvin, the, the great theologian, said this. He said he wanted, God wanted the fire to burn hotly in the sight of all to render the power of this deliverance more conspicuous. In the midst of the fire, they are walking around with pre-incarnate Jesus, with an angel who was sent to keep them safe in the midst of the fire and ultimately delivers them from the fire. The friends had faith that God could do this. God proved it by delivering them. And again, we have an even better and fuller picture of this. We have the Lord Jesus who comes to be with his people in fiery trials. When suffering for faith, Jesus promises to be with his people. And ultimately, he came to deliver from an even worse enemy than uh, the Nebuchadnezzar, from even more danger than the fiery furnace. He came to rescue people from the flames of hell. This ultimate deliverance. Who is able to deliver? God is able to deliver through his son, the Lord Jesus. Being faithful in Babylon, friends, means to worship God alone. Why should we do that? Well, why would we worship anything else? (laughs) It's all empty. And ultimately we have God who is able to deliver from death and from judgments to bring life and life eternal. And so again, at the moment, if you're beginning to question God's power, be reminded of what we see here wonderfully in Daniel chapter 3. And know that he is able to deliver from death and and beyond. We have so much more to live for. Why would we live for anything other than him? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this great um, snapshot of your deliverance that points us to that greater uh, greater deliverance of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the example of these faithful friends. And Father, we pray that you would please work in us that faithfulness too, that we would live wholeheartedly for you and you alone, trusting in your great power to keep us through. In Jesus' name, amen.